Here we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at the very end of the chapter, and then we'll dive into chapter 7. Um, let's see where we've been in chapter uh, 6, uh, going back. Uh, we talked about lawsuits and division among believers, and uh, that among two believers, there ought not to be a lawsuit, that they ought to let the church work it out uh, with them. We talked a lot about, starting in verse 12, about sexual immorality and that it has no place uh, in the church. The Corinthians lived in a very, very sexually promiscuous area. And so uh, Paul is trying to admonish them to uh, remember that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, in fact, first, uh, and that they should never uh, look at verse 16 of chapter 6. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality, verse 18. We covered this last week. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. There's something special about this thing called sexual union that God created and uh, within the bounds of marriage it's an unbelievably beautiful thing outside of the bounds bonds of marriage between a man and a woman it's it's sin for sure um, we're going to pick it up in uh, verse uh, 19 in a second I just want to say one quick thing that I meant to say last week. Whatever sin, uh, the subject has been sexual immorality more than anything lately in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. Whatever sin you struggle with, whatever it may be, you heard me talk about people that are struggling with alcohol problems, and then there's people that struggle with fear or with um, uh, lust or with uh, greed or whatever it may be anger, being unforgiving, whatever the sin is. 1 John 5.14 says if we ask God in prayer for anything and it's in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us. So if you pray for a new Mercedes, it might not be his will. Probably isn't. But I'm here to tell you, I can guarantee you that some things that you pray for are his will. One of which is, Lord, please take away from me the desire for blank, more money or sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be. Whatever your brand of sin is, if you pray, Lord, please take away from me the desire for that. I'm here to tell you that that's God's will. Why would his will be, no, I want Harold to sin more here? Impossible right? Here's another one that's always God's will. Father, please reveal to me these scriptures, what they mean. Why would God ever withhold that? Anyway, want to just throw that in. Okay, so I know that you're awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. amen. Pretty good. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Beautiful. Okay, I know I hear you, you hear me. That's good. Um, verse 19, do you not know or know ye not King James, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. Earlier in this chapter, he uses the idea of the body being the home for the Holy Spirit, and it's your 
plural, meaning the body, the church, is in a sense the home of the Holy Spirit as well, each church body. But now it's individual. Your singular body is a temple. So there's, in a Christian church, a bunch of little temples running around, right? We each have the Holy Spirit. You say, when do you get the Holy Spirit? How can I do that? The moment you believed you had the Holy Spirit enter you and live in you, he moved in. He unpacked. When you sin, does it grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does he pack his bags and move out? No. But your body, and this is a different way to think about your body, especially if you're considering sinning sexually and you start to think of your body as a temple, you would never want to desecrate the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the Jews worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem. You probably know this. And there were varying, there was the outside, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then there was um, the holy place where people sat and they heard the message and they learned, they worshiped, they prayed, and what have you. But back here, there was a little room, not much more than a bedroom size, that was called the Holy of Holies, where they had the Ark of the Covenant, in there was Aaron's rod that budded in the in the temple. It was a, the Ark of the Covenant was a little box, is all it was, um, and covered with gold and what have you. And that's where the sacrifice was sprinkled. And in that Holy of Holies, where that was, was the presence of God Himself. Well, could you take a tour? No. Who gets to go in there? One day a year, one person. The, Jeff said it, the high priest. That's the only person. And he didn't just waltz in there. He went in there with great fear and trembling. He went in there with a tremendous amount of cleansing first. What's your point, Joe? Just this, that the Holy of Holies is not in Jerusalem because there's no temple. There hasn't been since 70 AD. Where is it now? It's your body. Christ dwells in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, Paul says in one of his epistles, the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, so that you've received from God. Romans says, all that believe have the Holy Spirit. Um, so with that in mind, why would you ever desecrate a temple by attaching it to someone that's not your wife, doing any kind of sexual sin, looking at sexual sin with your eyes? Pornography used to be obscure and you had to go to some weird store to buy it. Um, and now it's on the internet and on your phone and it's free. It's a pretty scary time. Um, so verse nine, don't you know your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. We tend to think that we are our own. It's my body. I can do with it what I want, right? That's the pro-abortion stand. My body, my choice. Um, the point is we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Who bought us? God. How? Via the Lord Jesus Christ's precious blood on the cross, he bought us. It's the picture of, if you will, in the slave market, somebody buying somebody else. You say, I don't want to be a slave. Romans 8 says everybody's either a slave of the devil or of God. There's no third category. So I'd much rather serve the devil. Um, uh, no, no, I'm kidding. I'd rather serve the Lord. Um, in 
the book of Matthew, it says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. It's, there's a sense in which we're like the moon. We're supposed to reflect the sun, but not S-U-N-S-O-N. Reflect the sun, his love, his forgiveness, his grace. What we see him do in this book, you want to know more about God? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he treats people, the way he reacts to things. That's our example. We reflect his love via the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're not your own. You're bought with your price. You were bought at a price, sorry, verse 20. Therefore, honor God or glorify God with your body. That's how you do it, letting your good works shine before men, like we said earlier. All right, we're going to move on from chapter 6. Chapter 7, um, he's starting a section here about that he's dealing with questions they wrote to him about. Paul planted this church around four years before he writes this letter. Look at the first few words of verse one of chapter seven. Now for the matters you wrote about, in other words, they wrote him a letter with a bunch of questions. Number one, number two, number three, what about this? So what he's doing is answering questions they wrote, especially about marriage. As I said, Corinth was a city in Greece so full of sexual immorality, it was an abomination. There was at a high place there a temple, the Temple of Aphrodite, which was an amazing structure where there was pagan worship going on. And the men would engage in pagan worship by sleeping with temple prostitutes. There was about a thousand of them. So it was a grossly immoral place. So um, he's going to answer questions about marriage, about divorce, about um, single people, and then many other things as we go on in this book for several chapters. But for now, they have asked about celibacy, meaning having no sex whatsoever, okay? Because there's so much immorality, they, there was a desire for them to want to really be pure, we're in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, by the way. If you need a Bible, there's one on the back there on the table. Okay, so let's start reading and see what he has to say. Verse 1, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now, for those the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Okay, literally this reads, and you may have it in New American Standard or even King James, I think, has it. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Does anybody have that in their translation? Yes. Okay, what's that talking about? Just touching somebody? No. Touch a woman is a um, way of symbolically of saying touch a woman sexually, have sex with a woman. So it's good for a man not to do so. But Paul is so steeped in the Old Testament and in God's will, he knows the only boundaries that exist for that are marriage. So by saying it's good for a man not to marry, they've asked is it okay if we want to remain so pure to the Lord that we don't marry at all? Therefore, we have no sex. He's answering that question in the affirmative saying, yes, it's okay. He's going to show you that sing singleness and the ability to control yourself and not do that is a gift of God, as is marriage. He's going to say in these verses, if you don't have that gift, you're trying to remain signal, but you're burning with lust. It's better to marry. That's what we're going to see in a second. They asked about celibacy. Is it more spiritual when someone um, never 
commits any act of sexual nature, even inside of marriage. In other words, they were overdoing, overreacting to the idea about sexual immorality. It's wrong. Yes, it is. It's sin. Yes, it is. So they'd come home to their husband or wife, get into bed together and feel like, am I sinning doing this? I'm going to show you that he has a very balanced approach to this. It's okay. It's proper. It's honorable. But it's certainly not commanded that you don't get married or don't uh, have sex with a woman inside of marriage. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But notice there's a but in verse 2, or nevertheless, some translations have. Um, They thought if sexual immorality was so dangerous, maybe it's better to not marry. Keep in mind, we have our definitions we've been saying every week to bring you up to date if you haven't been here. And they are these. Two types of sexual immorality between a man and a woman. Okay, homosexuality is also condemned as a sin here and elsewhere, Leviticus. That's a separate category. But for a man and a woman, there's only two possibilities. Adultery. The person is married to person B, but having sex with someone else. Adultery. Fornication. Fancy word. All it means is porneia. It's all the same thing. Sexual immorality. Fornication is... I'm not married, she's not married, we're going to have sex before marriage, outside of marriage, any way you put it. So they were so worried about this that they thought maybe it's more spiritual to forget the whole sex thing completely. Let's keep rolling and it'll become more clear, hopefully. But since, verse 2, there is so much immorality, porneia, P-O-R-N, first four letters, you figure it out, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. That's Marriage is permissible. Singleness is permissible. That's what he's about to go into. Sex is not the only reason or the most important reason to marry. Um, let's see. Well, we'll get to that later. We're going to go to a couple places in Matthew in a second. Let's keep rolling. Verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife uh, to her husband. Okay, so there's a duty in marriage that we're learning. And that, uh, well, let's read the next verse and then it'll become more clearly. Uh, The wife does not have authority over her own body, verse 4, but yields it, the authority, over her body to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to the wife. Uh, Back to verse 2 now. There's so much sexual immorality going on. God has created marriage, not only for procreation, making babies and reproducing the species, but for the sexual immorality thing, those are the boundaries under which God blesses it. So if you're struggling with sexual immorality, this says each man should have sexual relations with his wife, verse 2, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and the wife has authority over the man's body, believe it or not, and vice versa. So there's a duty here to satisfy each other, come together uh, and do that. God's um, way of putting out the fire of lust and immorality is sex within marriage. Forgo that and 
you risk the temptation uh, level going up. Um, let's see. Sex is not wrong in marriage. It's a necessary function. I want you to notice that it does not specify anything about the husband or the wife. What do you mean, Joe? I mean this. It doesn't say um, that we ought to have sexual relations with our spouse if they're attractive like the women on television or our husband if they look like somebody on TV. We don't, do we? The point is, um, even if we're not that attractive, we're still supposed to be with our spouses in that way. However, this is a John Piper sermon line I'm stealing. We ought to each do what we can to make ourselves as attractive as we can to the mate within reason. Understanding that the people on TV, the people in magazines are airbrushed and there's all kinds of little secrets they have. Um, our society is so uh, sexual in its orientation and so into looks and being perfectly in shape. And the thing about sexual relations between a man and a woman is that the love grows and the reason for it becomes less and less about appearance and more and more about the union of two souls that love each other uh, in the Lord's will, if you will. Um, okay, let's see. Authority over the body, that's such an interesting thing to me, uh, verse four. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, let's see, verse four. Um, yeah, marital duty has to do with not just sexual relations for sex sake, but a true affection as well. So verse five, he gives a little another border, if you will, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's he talking about? There are legitimate times when a husband and a wife by mutual agreement, Harold and Sally here, can say, let's not have sexual relations for a time. What would those be? The example he gives is there is such a huge burden that needs prayer and fasting. Let's forego that sexual relations for a time, he specifies, so that we can just concentrate on praying and fasting. In a sense, they're fasting from sexual contact, but only for a time. What would be another situation? Uh, physical limitations. Somebody broke both their legs. Somebody's got broken ribs. If they're, they're, there's an injury or a sickness that prevents it, the other spouse has to understand that and, you know, uh, go with it. But when it's voluntary, mutual consent is necessary so that you can devote yourself to prayer. But then he quickly says, and you'll see whose name comes into the equation, then, end of verse 5, then come together again so that who? Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying where there's a marriage between a husband and a wife and they're not having sexual contact 
in a more regular way, that is an area, an open door for Satan to tempt, tempt one or the other. So we have to be on guard against that. Satan understands that we have built into us a sexual desire. Listen, it's God-given, that desire, within the bounds of marriage. Raging hormones start in the late, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and get worse as the teens go by. That's all well and good, but it's not to be exercised until we get married. In the time Jesus was living, girls got married very common, 13, 14, 15 years old, really young. Um, and in some cases, men as well, although men were often uh, older. So there's legit reasons to abstain within marriage for a little while, but it's never to be used as, listen, a weapon. I want a new car or we're not going to sleep together. I say that to my wife every day and she doesn't listen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, not as a weapon and not as any kind of um, coercion thing, not a bargaining chip uh, in any case. Um, let's see. By the way, to deprive each other, the word is the same word as defraud. It's the same thing. It's almost like cheating someone out of something that they are due. Um, so what about the, the desire for sex? In the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, we can put to death the fleshly desires. Permanently? No, not this side of heaven. But day by day, we can learn to give that desire, like the desire for eat, overeating or stealing or anything else, lying, whatever else, what other sin we might be doing, drugs. We can give that to God and in the power of the Spirit be overcomers. Whenever we resist, sin and yield to the Holy Spirit, listen, we're always happier. Always. It's always better. So verse six is talking about as a concession, uh, not a command, meaning it's an agreement. It's um, sort of a reluctant thing. He's certainly not commanding that they uh, abstain. So there's nothing wrong with sex and marriage and everything right in sexual relations inside of a marriage. As I said, a beautiful gift for God to share. Um, Satan, it's interesting, encourages sex outside of marriage, discourages sex inside marriage. The enemy of marriage, the enemy of all things good, as you know. Okay, um, verse seven. Personal note from Paul. We're gonna talk about Paul. I wish, verse 7, that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God in this area. Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. We'll talk about that in a second. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that. Okay. What's the story on Paul? Was Paul married? No, not at this time. Never talks about his wife. He's traveling alone. However, most scholars, and I won't sell this too hard, but most scholars believe Paul was married before. How do you know that? Because in the book of Acts, he casts his vote against the Christians as a member of the Sanhedrin. What's the Sanhedrin? I thought Paul was a Pharisee. 
He was uh, a teacher of the law, if you will. But out of all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees, the two categories, there were um, about 70 guys, 71 and the high priest, that were the ruling body of Israel, sort of like the Supreme Court mixed in with the senators in Washington, D.C. They ruled in terms of government when Israel self-governed, and they were the religious judges, 70 guys, 71 guys. Paul cast his vote. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, a, a total Bible scholar type guy. What's your point, Joe? You could not be a member of the Sanhedrin and not be married. Had to be. Just as, by the way, in 1 Timothy, <clears throat> excuse me, and in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, gives the requirements for an elder or pastor, someone that oversees a church. The first one is husband of one wife. You can't be a single pastor and head up a church biblically. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, had to have been married. By the time Jesus comes around and Paul thinks Jesus is a cult leader and wants to kill Christians and persecute them, his wife has either probably passed away or divorced him, unlikely, but possible as well. So it's thought that Paul was married, is no longer married. That's why he's saying in verse 7, I wish that you uh, were like me, meaning single. Why? Because Paul is devoting his life to serving God, traveling all over the place, serving God 24 hours a day sometimes. He's been shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, persecuted, you know all that list, right? Beaten with rods, and he's had a rough go of it. Bringing along his wife, I could see where the woman would go, honey, can we please settle down a little? All we're doing is traveling. All we're doing is preaching, preaching, preaching. He preaches for hours. It's easier for him. He has greater freedom and independence if he's single doing that. He's able to do it. He has the gift of singleness. He won't be marrying an, uh, another woman. Uh, so he wishes that we. it would be tough for a wife. He's also been very poor at times. Um, he gave, God gave him the, the grace to live that single life while serving God always. Um, so, um, it's a special gift from God. The word is charisma. Seems like charisma, right? To live single. Um, I wish you were all as I am, verse seven, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. From this verse and a few others, Catholics, mistakenly so, I believe, have formed the idea that we need to be like Paul and be priests and not marry, or nuns and women not marry. But as I said, to head up a church, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, first requirement, husband and one wife. Translation, you got to be married. Between the lines, you can also read something else there. Husband of one wife means that the leader of the church has to be what gender? A man. It doesn't say wife of one husband. Can women serve in a church? Yes, in a thousand different ways. Deaconess, all kinds of ways. They can teach other women, uh, children, 
Um, there's a lot of ways women can serve. Can women be an authority over men in a church? According to the New Testament, don't write me letters, ladies. The answer is no. It says so in the Bible. I didn't pick the rules. Um, but you saw the equality in terms of nature of men and women earlier in this chapter, didn't you? The husband doesn't have authority over his body, verse 4. He yields it to, the wife does. He yields it to his wife. Equality in terms of nature, but in terms of roles, there are different roles that men and women play. Okay, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, verse 8, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. He's going to stay unmarried. Okay, what's going on here? So we've got two categories, unmarried widows. You know what a widow is? That's the easy one, right? Someone, a woman whose husband has passed away, right? That's pretty simple. Um, let's see. Um, some say unmarried is everybody that's never been married. Okay. But there's another category further down in the chapter called virgins. Paul assumes that everybody before marriage is a virgin. Is everyone? No unfortunately, and he probably that's true in Corinth. So a lot of scholars think when he says unmarried, he means unmarried. Translation, divorced. Those that are divorced. Okay, uh, let's see. To, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. In other words, it's permissible. Your husband passed away, or you've been your husband divorced you and moved away, or whatever. Is it okay for me if I stay unmarried? He's saying it's perfect, perfectly permissible. Um, if I forget, somebody remind me. Um, that I better say it now because I will forget at my advanced age. Um, why is marriage so important to God? Okay, number. Forget all the other reasons. The, what what a divorce says as a as a statement to society if two christians get divorced what does that say to the society what happens to the children there's all those issues but there's a much deeper issue and that is that god intended marriage not only for pre procreation and for two to come together as one but he intended it as a picture of christianity what do you mean where the bride believers are of Christ. Christ is, ladies, you ready for this? The ultimate husband, the one you wish you had, right? The ultimate husband. You and I don't measure up, all you men that are here, admit it. Let's just admit it. Um, it's a picture of the union between God and men, Jesus and, and believers, men and women. So that's why God wanted that picture to stay intact. Old Testament, do you know what God says? I hate divorce, Malachi and elsewhere. So I wanted to just mention that. Um, Christianity ought to make women better wives, husband, uh, Christian men better husbands. Um, hopefully it does. So it's good to them, to, it's, they can stay unmarried as I do, verse eight. But here's the other half of that paragraph. If they cannot control themselves, if they're burning with lust, better for them to marry than to burn with passion. 
So what he's saying there is, if you've made a vow that you're not going to ever get married again, your spouse died, but you find yourself lusting and lusting and lusting, it's better to be married. Because then there's a release for that lust inside the boundaries of marriage that there isn't for unmarried people. It's perfectly permissible to stay single. It's perfectly permissible to get married. It depends on what gift God has given you. Uh, if, it's, if singleness is not your gift, then it's absolutely appropriate to marry. Now some practical uh, advice in verse 9 comes. If you can't control yourself, get married. But, and it doesn't say but there, but I'm going to insert a but here, and that's this. If you struggle as a divorced person, as a widow or widower, or as a single person, whatever, if you struggle with sexual lust to where it's all consuming in what you look at and what you think about and what you dream about and everything about you, and so you read that verse and go, well, I'm just going to get married and that'll solve everything. Might not. Because you might marry this woman who's a perfectly good Christian wife and still be lusting after other people. Is lust your God that you need to dethrone and put God in its place? Whole nother question. He doesn't go into that here, but I just did because um, I thought we, you should we, we should cover it. In, in any case, verse 10. To the unmarried, now he's still, to the married, sorry, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Do you see that? That's caused a lot of confusion. I'm going to settle it tonight once and for all, hopefully. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. You see that, verse 10? Some people look at that and say, okay, wait a minute. I give this command, not I, but the Lord. So Paul is sort of saying, look, Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We all know that, right? When John writes the book of John or 1 John or Revelation, the Holy Spirit is indwelling him in such a way that he's controlling what he writes. Yes, John writes in his own writing style, different from Peter, different from Paul, different from James. That's all true. They write in their own style. But the Holy Spirit guides every single, inspires, means breathes into God inspired. Every single word is God's word. You say, okay, wait a minute though, but what about verse 10? I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Isn't Paul saying, Joe, this sentence isn't inspired. It's just me commanding it. Okay, that's wrong. Two reasons. All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 16. First thing, is this scripture? It is. What's Paul saying here then? Paul is saying, I'm going to give a command now about something that Jesus, the Lord, never spoke about. Okay? Uh, he, Jesus does teach on marriage. We're going to look at Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 before we're done if the teacher remembers. Um, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He's just saying Jesus didn't speak specifically to this issue. I'm giving the command. Keep in mind, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the teachings, listen, of the Lord and the apostles. Is Paul an apostle? Yes. This is his teaching. It's scripture. It's all inspired. 
A, a wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain, verse 11, unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, we have to look at, at this point, Matthew 19. Turn there with me, if you will. Take a left and go to Matthew chapter 19. Aren't you glad that we have the scriptures and we don't have to guess about this stuff? Jesus teaches on marriage in Matthew 19 and gives, note the number, one biblical reason for divorce. One. And I'll tell you right now, it's not, she's not meeting my needs. He's not meeting my needs. Uh, I don't like him anymore. I'm not attracted to him or her. It's not, we're not getting along. There's one biblical reason for divorce, and it's adultery. Spouse A slept with someone else. Spouse B, if they're both Christians, is free in, a, in that divorce to remarry. However, the higher ground is if the, the person that cheated on the wife is repentant and says, I'll never do it again, I'm sorry, and gets right with God, it's the higher ground is for the cheated on spouse to say, I forgive you, let's reconcile and stay together. Why? God hates divorce. Okay, Matthew 19. Are you there? Say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Okay. Um, large crowds followed them and he healed them. So the Pharisees come in Testament verse 3. Is it lawful, lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, for any cause? There were liberal rabbis, Sadducees, who were saying, you know what? You can get divorced for any, a man can divorce a woman, very sexist, for any reason he wants. She burned the toast at breakfast yesterday. That's it. Write her a certificate of divorce. Moses said that in the Old Testament. Write her a certificate of divorce. Haven't you read verse 4? That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Again, at, at the risk of beating a dead horse. I said it last two weeks. There's only two genders. Male, female. Okay. He made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God instituted marriage. The family is the basic building block, listen, of society. Hillary Clinton is wrong. It does not take a village to raise a child. It takes a father and a mother. Grandparents, aunts and uncles, siblings can help, absolutely but it doesn't take a village. It takes a husband and a wife. Okay, uh, why then did Moses, verse seven, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? By the way, that's wrong. He didn't command it. He just allowed it. And Jesus will talk, speak on that, verse eight. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for... Marital unfaithfulness, adultery, uncleanness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, so there's a lot of other reasons people get divorced for, right? We have the legal term in this country. You ever heard this one? Irreconcilable differences. We just, we have irreconcilable differences. Biblically, 
It's not here in Matthew 9, right? It might be in the book of Illusions, chapter 4, but it's not here. I'm just kidding. Anyone who divorces his wife except for that reason and marries somebody else commits adultery. So look at the disciples' reaction in verse 10 because it's the same as the Corinthian church. That's why they wrote this letter to Paul and asked these questions. If it's this serious to get a divorce, maybe it's better just to not marry, not even have sex, just forget it. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. In other words, genderless. Don't have the equipment. Don't make me draw you a diagram. Um, and others have renounced marriage or became village uh, eunuchs sorry, by the, because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Um, let's see. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. We'll go back. We'll go to Matthew 5 later, uh, I think. So Jesus speaks a lot about not breaking up a marriage except for, or separating is the same word for divorce, except for when there's been adultery. By the way, we said this last week. If every human being on planet Earth lived by these rules, no one would have sex before marriage, right? Right. Only married people would have sex, right, and only with their own spouse, right. Then there would be no sexually transmitted diseases possible, right? Where did AIDS come from? That's a whole other story. I'll let you chew on that one. Um, but he, he is answering this question um, to set them straight for sure. Okay. Um, to the married, verse 10, I give this command, a wife shouldn't separate or divorce her husband. If she does, verse 11, because sometimes these things happen, she's got to remain unmarried or get back together with her husband. See it in verse 11, reconcile. And a husband must not divorce his wife. He's saying this with the exception already stated earlier about impurity, adultery. If that happens, the cheated on party, not the cheater, is free to, in that divorce, to, it's a biblical divorce, they're free to remarry. But the higher ground again is forgiveness if they can reconcile. The party that committed the act of adultery is not free to remarry. I'm going to forget this, so I better say it right now as well. I'm sure in this audience that there's somebody, or more than a few people, that have been divorced. Okay, divorce is not the unforgivable sin, right? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. That's a whole nother discussion. But divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Does God hate divorce? He does. He also hates murder. He also hates stealing and what have you. It's not the unforgivable sin. If you realize now as a Christian, you know, I got divorced when I was 24 and I should not have done that. It was a sin. Confess it to God. If you're still single and so is your wife who you divorced and you can reconcile with her, well, we're older now, doesn't matter. But if she's remarried and you've remarried, doesn't mean I'm going to better divorce this lady now too. Two wrongs don't make it right. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
recognize that it's a sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. Wanted to mention that. Um, there's a guy named Tim Keller, Dr. Timothy Keller. He's an amazing teacher. He's gone very left and woke now, I'm sorry to say, but he wrote an incredible book called The Meaning of Marriage, where the whole book is equating marriage, comparing it to the relationship to, I said earlier between believers and the Lord Jesus Christ and why that is the picture we ought to be uh, aiming for. Um, so they're supposed to mar honor their marriage vows even in if there's a divorce in uh, verse 11. Um, let's see, other notes. Yeah, we talked about that and that. Um, all those reasons, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not happy, they're not biblical. You make it work. A marriage is, listen, a commitment. What do we say in Western cultures? In sickness and in health, for better or for better, no, for better or for worse, till divorce do us, no, till what? Death. The other way a person can remarry is, God forbid, if the spouse passes away. Obviously, they're free to remarry if they would like to. If they are the innocent party in a divorce, okay, last thing. Now we're, now we're getting into all these other weird what-ifs. What if, Joe, Susie and Bill are married over here, and Bill is beating up Susie and the children? I think that's not in here. I think the logical thing is that Susie has to leave Bill. Separate, at least. You got to get out of there. That's dangerous. I know that there are Christians that would say, no, she's got to stay there and take the black eyes and the bruises. I can't imagine that God would want that. Um, let's see, Bill is sexually abusing the children. She's got to get those children and get out of there. Uh, just me talking, if I'm wrong, forgive me. I, I can't imagine that God would say, no, you need to stay there as well. Um, again, because of the hardness of your hearts, God makes provision for divorce and for even separation. Um, Let's take our two-minute break right now that I've offended just about everybody. Um, we're just going to stretch our legs. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know that's here. Well, I'll see you in two minutes, those of you on Zoom. I'm just going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. I'll be right back. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Um, a learned fellow elder just said to me, and he's right, if a husband was sexually abusing kids, that's a form of adultery, right? Sex outside of between the husband and the wife. Good one. Same with the wife if she was. Yeah, good one. Anyway, a little bit uncomfortable subject tonight. We're not usually, I don't know about you, but I'm not that comfortable talking about this stuff. But hey, it's in the word and we don't skip anything here, do we? Maybe we should. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, so verse 10 to review, a wife shouldn't separate from her husband. Obviously, the exception is Matthew 19, adultery. Verse 11, if she does, she's got to remain unmarried um, if it wasn't a biblical divorce or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband shouldn't divorce his wife. To the rest, verse 12, I say this. Let me just look at that. Okay. Um, to the rest, verse 12, I say this. I, uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry, you know what I messed up in verse 10? Not I, but the Lord is where he is quoting Jesus from um, Matthew 19. Now this is where I messed up, sorry. Verse 12, is this is where he's saying, I, not the Lord. This is his own opinion, but he has the Spirit of God. He's going to say it at the end of the chapter. I have the Spirit of God. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So here's another category. He's assuming Christians marry other Christians. By the way, that's a command. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked. What does that mean? Don't marry. I'm a Christian, but I love this woman. I'm going to marry her. Even though she's not a believer, we used to call it in the 70s, missionary dating. I know she's not a Christian, but I, don't do it. Same with a woman. Don't marry the guy who's so cute, but he's not a Christian. Don't marry him. Christians are supposed to marry other Christians. What was happening here is that church was formed about four years ago. Maybe two unbelievers got married, the wife got saved, the husband wanted nothing to do with church, or vice versa. Okay? Or it could be an act of disobedience. Like we said, one was a Christian, fell in love with somebody that wasn't hoping, I'll change him. You never know. Okay, so to the rest, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer, got the picture? He's a Christian. His wife doesn't believe, won't go to church, doesn't believe, in it, won't pray with him, but she contents to live with him. Um, let's see, he must not divorce her. In other words, what's implied here is, is that they had asked the question, what about um, Sam over here? Who's I shouldn't use Sam. There's a Sam here. What about Stanley over here who's married to Louise? Stan's a Christian. Louise isn't. Shouldn't he get rid of her and find a Christian wife? No. Stay together. He'll get to why. There's a lot of reasons. One is it's a binding covenant either way, believer or not believer. Verse 13, and if a woman, vice, the, the opposite situation, she's a believer. She's got a husband who's not a believer, and he's willing to hang in there. Don't divorce him. Okay. You're not going to, but I want to be more spiritual. I want to divorce him and, uh, and I want to marry, find a Christian husband. Or you ever heard this one? Yes, I'm married and we're just not that happy, but God has brought to me another woman. God did that? Not biblical. Okay, so if you're in a mixed marriage, one believer, one unbeliever, and they're willing to hang in there, you should too. That's the bottom line on those two verses. Four, verse 14, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. We got to talk about this because it sounds like something that it's not. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now I got to look at a page of notes and make sure I didn't forget anything. Uh, yeah, we, we did cover that. Okay, now we're moving on. Um, so the marriage stands unless the unbeliever splits. He's going to cover that in a second. Okay, so, but what about this verse 14? The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. What that doesn't mean is um, 
that um, Harold is not a believer, but Susie is, so Harold's going to heaven. Doesn't mean that. You know why? Because every individual person has to make their own decision for Jesus, whether to follow him as Lord and Savior or not. God has no grandchildren, meaning, well, my kids are, they're my kids. I'm a Christian, so they're Christians. Not necessarily, not automatically. In the same way, just because I'm a Christian, if my wife was not, and she is, but if she wasn't, it doesn't assure that she's going to heaven. Well, then what do you mean sanctified? Sanctified means set apart, okay? There is a blessing in being married to a Christian because a Two unbelievers do not have the exposure to Jesus, the Bible, prayer, church that a unbeliever has when they're married to a Christian. Maybe the unbelieving spouse is rolling her eyes every time the believing spouse prays over the meal, prays at bedtime, um, prays throughout the day, praises God when good things happen, reads the word out loud to her, but she's being exposed to that. And there is a sanctification that happens in that household. I'm not saying she's automatically saved. I am saying the chances she might get saved increased dramatically when she married Harold, who's a believer, as opposed to Jimmy, who's not, right? And they're going to get drunk together and whatever. Who knows? Maybe they both will get saved, the unbelievers. That happens too, right? But that's what he means by sanctified. That there's a blessing on the household when there's a one believer there. Couple examples: Old Testament, uh, Genesis 30. Laban, an unbeliever, says that his household is blessed and sanctified because of Jacob showing up. If you know about Jacob from the Old Testament, he was no star Christian by any means or believer by any means. Um, Potiphar's household was sanctified because of Joseph showing up. Potiphar was an unbeliever. Remember uh, Genesis 39. Um, okay, we still have to cover the unclean children. That's a whole nother thing, but I want to stay on this. There's blessing in being married to a believer. So the believer should hang in there and never give up. Why? He's going to cover that a few verses down where he says, how do you know? Maybe... 19 years later, 11 years later, four years later, your unbelieving spouse is going to come to Christ. I've seen it happen. A woman used to come to this Bible study and complain about her unbelieving husband. And 10 years later, he totally started believing. I won't say who it is, but uh, an amazing thing. Okay, go back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. On Zoom, you doing okay? I see you, Ken. See you waving. Okay. Um, so um, there's no assurance that I married an unbeliever, but he'll come around. Maybe not, right? There's no assurance, but they're sanctified. They're under that roof that is, uh, has that Christian influence. Uh, God, God's grace has a way of spilling over. I like that. Um, and we're going to look at another verse in a second, but I want to just see what else we have there. Okay, let's talk about the kids here. Um, let's see, where were we? Uh, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife sanctified through her believing husband. 
Otherwise, your children, verse 14, the end of it, would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What's going on there? Okay. Otherwise means if the two people, a believer and an unbeliever, didn't stay together, there was a divorce. Otherwise, that's why it's otherwise, then the children would be unclean. What do you mean? It's possible in the divorce, the kids would go with Harold, who's the unbeliever, and not with Sally, okay? Or be um, in a broken home and the children, it doesn't mean the children are going to hell. It just means they don't have that sanctifying influence of watching a Christian marriage. Um, let's see. There is a term, it doesn't sound like it fits in, but it does. There's a term, have you ever heard this term? The age of accountability. You ever heard that term? This is the theory. I'm going to show you both sides of it. This is the theory that um, until a child is old enough to understand the gospel and believe it, they automatically go to heaven. The most drastic example is a baby, okay? Bill and Susie have a baby. It dies four days old. Does God send that child to hell? If you're a Catholic, I'll tell you now, he doesn't send it to limbo. That's where babies go who die in Catholicism. Where you get that in the Bible, I don't know. Um, okay, so what about babies that die? let alone six-year-old, three-year-olds, eight-year-olds. Are they old enough to understand the gospel? I think that's a question that's different for every child. The common thing you hear in Christian circles, I don't know that you could prove this, is that the age of accountability is 13. Have you ever heard that? Why 13? Odd number. Because in Judaism, a boy becomes a man, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah for a girl, at 13. Um, and uh, they can fully understand the Old Testament, that God has certain rules and what have you. Let's face it, I think kids can understand much younger than that, right? Um, there's a thing that happens in the Old Testament with King David. He um, is married. His neighbor is a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. She's married, but not to David. She's bathing on the roof, naked. Already I have my suspicions. What? What was she doing again? David sees her. I'll make the story as short as possible. Takes her into his home, sleeps with her, and gets her pregnant. Okay? Adultery. You're talking about King David? Yes. A man after God's own heart? Yes. He did it. Shows anybody can fall to sexual temptation right? He has her husband killed and then marries her and they have a child. Do you remember this? And the baby dies. His friend who's a prophet comes and tells him, because you did this, the kid's going to die. And that's why it happens. The baby between David and Bathsheba dies as a baby. Okay. You say, well, it wasn't the baby's fault. I'm hip. 2 Samuel 12, 23, David has been grieving and praying and praying for that child. Once the child dies, he gets up, washes his face, 
doesn't do it anymore. They ask him about it, and he says he, that he knows that the child can't come to him. Why? The child has died. But he says that he knows that he, David, will go to the child one day. David is a believer. Yeah, but he just sinned. You just said he slept with a... I know. But David is a believer. David is going to go to heaven. You will meet King David in heaven. And you ladies, you can yell at him for cheating on his wife, whatever you want to do. But he'll be there in heaven. He says with certainty, he knows. He, the baby can't come to him, but he will one day go to the baby. From that, it might be a flimsy case, but people have said, and I think they're right, that if a baby dies, they go to heaven. Now, um, at what age is the age of accountability? We're not told in the Bible. There are people that think that God, when a baby dies, knows if the baby had lived, what they would have done with the gospel. This little girl would not have believed the gospel, so she's going to go to hell. That little boy would have believed the gospel. He's going to go to heaven. Which is it? I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I rest in. God is totally fair. No one after judgment day, no one will be able to say, well, that wasn't fair. No one. Then we'll know fully as, we, as God knows all the reasons, all the mechanics of things behind the spiritual gears we don't see, we'll understand. I rest in the fact he's totally fair. If you ask me, I'm just telling you my opinion. I believe babies, if they die, they go to heaven. That's not a good reason to kill your baby. Now I'm, I'm sure she'll go to heaven. Why would you do that? But um, as far as the kids being unclean, that's what uh, he's talking about, them not being under the, under the uh, roof where there's uh, at least one believer. But as it is, they are holy, sanctified, meaning those kids are being raised with at least one believer. That's way better, he's saying, than that household where there's zero believers. I have friends that are Christians who, when I asked them, did your parents go to church? Never. I'm the only one. Can God do that? Yes. Is that awesome or what? Some of you maybe, right? I was raised in a, a Catholic home. We went to church every Sunday. Even if we went on vacation, my mother would get the yellow pages out. There's got to be a Catholic church here. And my brother and I were going, really? Maui, you know, wherever. We're going to Catholic church. Okay. So we already talked about that. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. Um, confession, repentance, uh, but it's a serious thing. Um, okay, let's keep rolling. We still have plenty of time. Uh, let's see, 14 we talked about. Yes, 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, now we're back to the situation. Uh, there's a marriage. One of the spouses is a believer. One is not. The unbeliever says, I, I want to leaves, meaning I want a divorce. We call this abandonment. Okay, but it is abandonment, listen, by an unbeliever with a believer. Got the picture? The unbeliever says, I want a divorce, or they split. Some scholars think what's implied in that is the unbeliever has a little thing going on the side with somebody else. Maybe, 
It doesn't say that. It just says he leaves. He abandons the spouse that's a believer. In other words, in that culture, there would be a divorce. There wouldn't just be, we're just going to leave it as it is, and there would be a divorce. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister, the believer, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. What does that mean? If the unbeliever leaves and there's a divorce, the remaining Christian spouse is not bound. It's a biblical divorce on their part. That woman or man who's a believer, whose unbeliever spouse left, can remarry. We're not bound in those situations. God's called us to live in peace. The same word bound is used in the book of Romans where it says if there's someone that's a believer and their spouse dies, they're not bound. You're free to remarry in that case kind of thing. I'm still looking at notes here. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay, verse 16. Here comes the real reason. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Translation, be patient. Show Christian uh, examples to your unbelieving spouse. Spouse, Love them in spite of their unbelief, especially so that the, the spouse can be won by the godly example of a Christian wife or husband. Now, clarification. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Okay. He means whether your husband will become a Christian someday or your wife will become a Christian. With me so far? What it doesn't mean is she actually saved him because only Jesus saves people, right? Uh, because of the cross, God calls people. The Holy Spirit draws people. Jesus died and paid for our sins. He's the one that saves. He's just using that word as a way of saying, how do you know your husband might get saved someday? Be patient. Might take a long time. How do you know? You don't know. There's no assurance. Um, and what's assumed is that the wife is living the Christian life and is raising up her kids as Christians uh, wherever she can. Um, but here's a word of hope at the end there. How do you know? They might get saved. Don't divorce an unbeliever. So in Christian circles, some people say there's two grounds for divorce. I would say that's true with an asterisk. The one that Jesus teaches, Matthew 19, we talked about is adultery. My wife cheated on me or her husband cheated on her. If there's a divorce, she can remarry. She's the innocent party. With me? As I said, the higher ground is forgiveness, reconciliation. The other grounds is desertion. But that's an unbeliever leaving a believer. That's why there's an asterisk. Let's see. Now we're going to kind of uh, take a little bit of a left turn and talk about changing of status. Here's the question that's implied that they asked at, at the Corinthian church to Paul. I used to be this. Now I'm a Christian. So things change as a Christian. True. I used to get drunk every night. Now I don't get drunk anymore. True. I used to steal at work. Now I don't steal anymore. True. I used to sleep around. Now I don't. used to do drugs, whatever it may be. They're taking this to extremes. This Corinthian church is 
um, one that lives by extremes. They live in an extreme area. Let me explain. Verse 17. Um, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has, has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Just because you're a believer, does that change the sin thing? Yes. Don't do it. But if you're a believer and you're a plumber, should you stop being a plumber? No. If you're a believer and you live in Las Vegas or you live in Copenhagen, should you move? Not necessarily, unless God leads you. Stay in the situation you're in. The idea is God planted you there for a reason. Yes, but I work with all unbelievers. God says, perfect. There's a mission field. You can show them Christian love and forgiveness in a way others can't. We always say in this Bible study, um, some people that you run into now and then, the only Bible they might read is your life, your example. So don't shun them. He's going to discuss now, how much should I change my um, circumstances and situation because I become a believer? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord <clears throat> excuse me, has assigned to them just as God called them. That's the rule I lay down in all the churches. Examples. This is a weird one, I admit. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man circumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts, what matters. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God calls them. Now he's going to go into work, starting in verse 21, but we're not there yet. What is obvious is that he doesn't mean sin. Stay in the situation you were in when God found you. Well, I used to be a drunk. That you have to change. But your occupation, your whether you're circumcised or not. Okay, the Jews were circumcised. The men were. Okay, on the eighth day, you circumcise a male baby. The cutting of the foreskin, it was a sign that we're cutting away the flesh, the old desires. Okay, the New Testament counterpart to Circumcision is baptism, okay? It's commanded for believers. If you haven't been baptized as an adult believer, you should do it. Okay, now that I made you feel guilty, let's go back to circumcision. You say, wait a minute. He says if you were already circumcised, meaning you were Jew, and then you became a believer, don't get uncircumcised. How do you get uncircumcised? Okay, believe it or not, there was a surgery, 1 Maccabees, that's in the Catholic Bible, 116, a surgery that where they would painfully stretch the foreskin and sew it to the appearance of, see, I wasn't circumcised. He's saying, stuff doesn't matter. Who cares? God doesn't care. Circumcised, uncircumcised, stay in the situation you, you were in. It doesn't really matter. Um, if you are married, uh, and you come to Christ and you're married to an unbeliever, stay married if you can. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Translation, the O word, obedience. 
That is not how you earn your salvation. That's the proof that you really are saved. You know, I owe God everything. I want to please him. I want to obey him. That's why I want to learn the word. What does God want? That's what I want to do. That's a proof you're saved. It's not the means by which you get saved. The means is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and his sacrifice. Okay. Um, yeah. Getting uncircumcised. That's such a weird thing. First um, John 2, 3. This is how we know that we know Christ as Savior. If we keep his commandments, John 14, 15, and it's, he says it again in chapter 15, Jesus, if you love me, oh, I love Jesus. Listen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. Simple as that. Obedience. Um, <laughs> what we do proves who we are, who we believe. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, going back to the text. Already circumcised, no need to change. Uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. Um, different, by the way, for baptism, it's a command for believers. Does baptism save you? No, it's a sign to the unbelieving friends and people around you, come and watch my baptism. Translation, watch my death. The old me is gonna go into the water and disappear. And the new me is gonna come up washed, looking a little like a drowned rat, but it's a picture of, what Jesus did spiritually, and I'm so proud of it, I want you, y'all, to see it. That's plural of you. Um, circumcision's nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. By the way, you know what else is nothing? All the Old Testament uh, laws. I'm having an email discussion with a brother and a sister in the Lord. I believe they're Christians. They're trying to convince me we Christians need to keep the whole Old Testament law. All those laws about what we can eat, about worshiping only on Saturday, Sabbath, all of that stuff. I've sent them scriptures we're discussing. But anyway, the Colossians 2 settles it. It says, don't let anybody judge you about what you eat or drink or about a new moon, which is monthly celebration or a, a Sabbath day, which is weekly. Those things are, listen, this is Paul writing Colossians 2. You can look it up. Those things are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Would you rather, rather worship and believe the substance or the shadow on the ground. Big difference. Okay. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Verse 19. Keeping God's commands, what counts? Each person, verse 20, remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Don't get a divorce because you're a Christian now. Of course not. You don't have to necessarily change jobs. However, if your job is sinful, you might want to think about, you know, I'm a prostitute. I'm a stripper. I think maybe you ought to find a new profession. God will lead you somewhere, right? Okay, now we're going to talk about professions. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Meaning the day you got saved, were you a slave? Keep in mind, slave, we hear that, we think um, deep south 1800s, guys whipping black men and women and making them, you know, work all hours. In that society, the majority of the citizens of the Roman Empire, the majority were slaves. They weren't just laborers. Some of them were lawyers, doctors, 
um, all kinds of skilled trades. A slave meant an employee, but it meant more than just an employee. It meant maybe there was a debt incurred that he couldn't pay, so he will work for me permanently. I will provide him with clothing, with shelter, with food, etc. But were there abuses? Of course there were. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. What he's saying is God can use you right where you are. Just like he said to the husband and the wife, how do you know whether you'll save your wife or your husband? He's saying you're a slave, then you're around a bunch of other slaves and you're around a master and his wife. And how do you know? Maybe your example, going the extra mile, working harder than everyone else. Christians ought to be good employees. Amen. Maybe that will create a change around you. God will use that situation. Don't let it trouble you. If you can gain your freedom, do so. 4 verse 22, the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Say that again. Well, here's what he means. If you're a slave and you come to faith in Jesus, you are free in Christ. You mean I can just leave? No, you might still be a slave. But in terms of slavery to sin, slavery to self and selfishness, slavery to the devil and hell, you're free. You're in a much higher position than the people around you who aren't saved. On the other hand, and he gives the converse, um, Similarly, the one who was free when called, not a slave, is now Christ's slave. You say, yeah, I'm not, I don't like the slave term. Listen, there's nobody better to be a slave to, a servant of, than God, than the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't whip us. He's the great master. Amen. If the Bible only called believers, only slaves of Christ, servants of Christ, I'd still want to do it because I know what he did for me. He, I, he owe, I owe him everything, every gift I have, every meal I ate, every breath I take, every drink of water I have. It's all from him. It's all a gift. I owe him everything. But isn't it awesome that he uses other terms like daughter, like son, like he's our loving father. He uses terms that are a little derogatory, whether you know it or not. He's the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, Psalm 23. Trust me on this, six verses, memorize it. It'll change your life. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I love that. God's my shepherd. Hello? What does that make you? A sheep. Oh, a dumb sheep. Yep. Who better to have a shepherd? than a dumb sheep. How much God is your shepherd is dependent on how willing you are to admit, boy, I am, sometimes I am such a dumb sheep. Sheep are easily led. They're defenseless. They're just plain dumb. We used to have a guy in this Bible study 20 years ago who was a shepherd. He had a flock of sheep in coarse gold. He told me that if you have a flock of sheep on a cliff, and one walks to the edge and walks, falls over, others will follow. 
Oh, let's see where Harry went. Bah, I guess it would be, right? Any, in any case, it's a beautiful thing to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's why we were built this way, to serve him. Who were we serving before? Ourselves and the devil. Which sounds better to you? I'd rather serve God for his purposes, eternal purposes. Verse 23, he mentioned it earlier. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Wait a minute. I thought he just said if you were a slave, you can stay as a slave. He said, don't become a slave to any human being. Don't worship. Or Earlier in this book, do you remember he said the division in the Corinthian church was, I'm of Paul, a were of Apollos, a were of Peter. Remember all that? A were of Jesus. Don't be a slave of any human being follow Christ the Lord. That's what he means there. Um, yeah. All right. I think we're going to quit because we're, well, no, we can go another minute or two. Uh, most of you are asleep anyway. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Why? Because Christ bought you. You are his, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, summing up each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were they, they were in when God, God called them. Because we can influence the people around us with our Christianity. Now, it's true <clears throat> that if you work with 50 unbelievers and you're the only Christian, it's tough. My old pastor um, talked to me about this situation once and said, because I worked with a bunch of unbelievers. Um, and I was playing music in nightclubs. Uh, and he said, let me give you an analogy, Joe. I said, okay. He said, you're in a little rowboat in the ocean. Yes. And you're fine. But if enough ocean gets in the boat, the boat becomes part of the ocean. It sinks, right? So you have to be in it, but not of it, in other words. We're supposed to be letting our light shine before men. Anyway, let's quit there for now. We'll pick it up next week. Um, for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. We could pray and study your word and, and fellowship God. Tough subjects, divorce and adultery and fornication and... All of these things, Father, being married to an unbeliever is a tough thing. For each of us, you give the grace, God. If there's any here that are uh, previously divorced, I pray that uh, they would confess it as sin if it was that and they weren't the innocent party and ask for your forgiveness. If there's any considering divorce, I pray that they would rethink it. If there are uh, people married to unbelievers, I pray that you give them patience to be the believing spouse and stay where they are. Use us for your glory wherever you are, God. That's how powerful you are. You can use anybody anywhere they are as long as they're committed to you and to the degree that we submit to your Holy Spirit. What a wonderful thing. I'm thankful to be a servant of yours, God. Use me and each one here for your glory. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here on Zoom. Those of you that are here in person, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. We'll see you next time, those of you on Zoom. God bless.